Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to the 11th episode of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's biweekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation with Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkoff and Michael Rapino, President, CEO, and Director at Live Nation Entertainment. One of the most powerful people in music and live entertainment, Michael's conversation covered everything from global audiences to artists' challenges and changing consumer behaviors. We'll hear from them shortly. Now we'll hear from Jeremy with this week's KinCast quiz question. In 2017, what is the projected growth rate for U.S. Facebook users ages 12 to 17? A, 8%, B, 3%, C, 0%, or D, negative 3%. Several weeks ago, REA visited Michael in L.A. at the Live Nation offices. Since becoming CEO in 2005, he helped transform Live Nation into the number one live music and entertainment platform in the world, servicing over 40 countries and millions of consumers and fans, 80 million this year to be exact. Let's hear now from Michael and Arie. So we are sitting here in Los Angeles with Michael Rapino, the CEO of Live Nation, poolside at the rooftop of one of the hottest hotels in LA, and it's a beautiful day outside. No, I'm just joking. We're in LA, but in the Live Nation offices, which are also very cool. <laughs> and it's a very serious discussion. But Michael, thanks for doing this with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Glad we can help on your fifth anniversary. Thank you very much. Thank you. As many of you know, Michael Rapino is not only the CEO of Live Nation and one of the key executives in the media industry and the music industry, but he's now ranked towards the top of the list on the Billboard 100 as the most powerful people in the industry consistently every year. He runs the largest concert company in the world by far. And most people don't know that Live Nation serves more customers and fans than the NBA, the NHL, and the NFL combined around the world. You started this company as CEO in 2005 and have been CEO ever since, combining with or acquiring Ticketmaster in 2010. Today you've hit about $10 billion of enterprise value as a company. The stock has been materially outperforming the S&P all the way through. What happened? What's the secret? Talk about the journey and what are the things that surprised you along the way? Thank you. You know, in, in 2005, we were a spinoff of Clear Channel Entertainment. They had attempted to uh, kind of leverage concerts in their core business. It didn't work. They are separate businesses. So when we spun out in 2005, you know, expectations were low. We were the concert promoter, which was very low on the, on the totem pole. Uh, all the chatter was always about the record label and digital and Spotify and how would that be monetized and solved. At my first board meeting, you know, I, I would have said to the board, we kind of have two options. We can kind of dress, dress up the pig and, and sell it, and someone will want a, a small concert company. Um, but the center of the wheel is going to become live, and we can build a strong business around what will ultimately be the most important piece of the economics for the artist live. Um, and we had a great supportive board and um, started to build and started to really focus on being the largest live entertainment company and have kind of stayed that course for uh, 13 years now. But still, I mean, really outperforming pretty much all metrics and now having the stock at highs above $40 per share after your last earnings. This has really uh, been a real success story. What contributes to that slope for you? What do you think the attributions of that success for you have been? It's external and then the execution. Externally, yep. 
again, back then we believed the thesis was live was an unduplicatable asset. Um, this wasn't something that was going to be affected like many other media companies. Um, and on a global basis, on a supply-demand basis, you looked at it, there were more artists than ever performing live because it was the economics. you got to be on the road to make money. Um, distribution had opened up. Yahoo, YouTube, uh, Facebook, you name it, now all of a sudden was broadcasting to that 19-year-old in Colombia knew who Rihanna was. So you had, a no, you had a now a global audience that was getting access to these rising artists. And you had the artists now who were able to travel to Colombia and Cape Town to perform. So we had the pie was growing on a global basis, both from a consumer perspective, more fans want to go to live shows, and, um, and a supply-demand, and that more artists were going on the road to make money. So we looked at always from, this is going to be a real growth industry. You look at the last 20 years of live entertainment, there's probably not been an industry with compounded growth as consistent as the live music business, because both consumer demand and fairly recession-proof. Live concerts continually rank top two, three things that a consumer wants to and has to do every year as their, as their escape. Yeah, and you can't really say that for the rest of the media industry. Obviously, every situation is individual and special and specific, but the media industry overall in the last 10 years has not been a straight line up. I mean, it's been a business no. in transition. So a lot of it has to probably also do with your drive, your ambition. I remember you telling me a few times over the last few years, I'm going to keep raising that bar, REA. So you really do have this kind of grit that you, I think you also bring to the table here. We've been very strategic on, uh, you know, as we call it, a small to-do list and a big don't-do list. Um, there's, there's been a global consolidation, and we've been, you know, we kind of from day one had a few theories, and one was we needed to go global. This is a really unique business where you don't have all of the media laws and the governing problems that you would have trying to expand otherwise. I don't need a factory in Colombia. I don't need a media broadcast license. I have no limitations. Um, we can open up a Live Nation office in Colombia tomorrow, and the product that's exported there is Rihanna. Um, so you have this global view, and I really, really accredit that, that I went from Toronto to London, spent five years in London. Personally. Personally, yeah. and with Clear Channel. Yep. Um, and really the greatest, greatest kind of gift I had was seeing the world through a much more global lens. So when then I came to L.A. Um, and launched Live Nation out of Clear Channel in 2005, I just started with, this is a global story. This isn't a U.S. story. Um, so much global, you know, really, really about a global business consolidating and, and doubling down on this strategy over and over. How far along the paradigm are you towards that global goal? How concentrated are you? Do you feel like there's a lot more areas of expansion there? Yeah, you know, this is a business where, you know, we're going to this year get close to 80 million fans will go to a Live Nation show. Again, as you said, larger than any league. It's a league on itself. Um, so as big as we are, the beautiful part is um, still in every city around the world, there are tons of festivals, promoters, venues that are unconsolidated in Asia, Latin America. We're not even in Latin America in any sense. We have a whole continents that we still have a chance to consolidate, bring, bring that U2 show, monetize it from an LN office perspective and grow. So we think 80 million can be 100, can be 200 million customers on a global basis. We always look at it as we're very large when you look at, at, at the kind of the core growth numbers. We think, although the numbers aren't perfect, we're only about a 30% global market share. So we have a lot of growth left ahead of us. And who's your nearest competitor? 
Our nearest competitor would be AEG. Yep. I think they sold somewhere in the, you know, maybe 19, 20 million tickets last year. A much more of a real estate business, and, and, and they do a really good job at the O2 and the Staples, um, but not as focused as we are as on the content. Um, and then it's a regional business. You know, there's a huge promoter in Latin America and Mexico. It's a public company. There's a big promoters in, in Brazil and Japan. So it's a very regional business. Fragmented. Fragmented regional business that we uh, continue to uh, expand. We just launched yesterday in Switzerland with Ticketmaster. Um, so this year alone, we continue to enter new markets with either the Ticketmaster or Live Nation brand. So when you think of Live Nation Ticketmaster, you, you do, as you described, think about a global live events and ticketing company. But what are some of the things that would surprise everyone about how you really look at the company from within? In 2015, in one of the interviews you gave, you described the company as thinking of us as a Disneyland for live. Right. What does that mean? It's almost considered you know, not sexy. But when people say, how are you going to grow this business? When you have 80 million customers going to your shows, um, and you're in a $700 million a year kind of EBITDA business right now, on 80 million customers on a scale, if I can sell them one more dollar of a, of a keychain or a beer, our business expands. So we think our greatest opportunity is to continually monetize our, our fan base. We've been growing on average about $2 a year on incremental. Live Nation will do somewhere in the $20 per fan range. We look at the high-end sports leagues, the NFL stadiums, Derry Jones' stadium, some of the high bars, they're closer to $40, $45 per fan. So again, we think just growing $2 a year, we have another 10 years of adding $2 to those 80 million customers and growing by doing a better job treating them on site and monetizing them. Um, and, and we'd hire a lot of people recently from Universal Theme Park and Disneyland. We just had our, a current meeting an hour ago and talked about how will we increase on-site, how will we sell them more on-site, give them a better experience, and monetize them. So talk to us about the Verified Fan Program that you launched. It's made the rounds, given the fact that you know, Springsteen, Springsteen, the Harry Potter, the, the Broadway engagements, etc. What should fans know about it? Is it a boon or an overhang for ticket resale in the future? It's a great strategic step for Ticketmaster and for the artist. I mean, overriding you know, challenge right now is there's about $8 billion trading on the secondary market. Um, and that's just purely because of the inefficiency of how the market is priced. Uh, it's the only product in the world that has a higher market value the second it's sold. No other industry would do this. If you, uh, if you could sell something for $400, you would never sell it for $100. Um, but artists are some of the greatest brand managers in the world, and Springsteen being one of them. So these artists are brilliant, and they have to figure out what the message is, not just what the economics are. So the challenge, though, is... The, the, the tickets generally get priced under, under value, and there's a whole network and a, and a business now on secondary. So our job is, 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 is kind of a double fold. We have to sit down with artists and talk to them about how they monetize and maximize the pot, but also how they can make sure that when they want to sell a $99 ticket, how do we get that to a fan at $99, not $400? And the biggest challenge we've had is how do we get a fan to be able to buy the ticket at the low price the artist wants to actually charge, even if it's an inefficient price. Um, and to date, you haven't been able to do that. <clears throat> the artist feels good about a $100 ticket. We put it on sale. It's bought by a scalper, and it's sold for 400 to that guy in Indianapolis or that lady. So that's a, that's a real, real challenge for the artist. So we've been working over the last couple of years on how can we take this business, which is really a barcode business. This is an old-school business where... 
you know, the airlines and others in the old days had a barcode. How do you actually take a ticket and turn it into a piece of ID of the future? Where your phone becomes the actual ticket, where you are actually the customer, and we put an identity to it. So that's the, the overall theory. The ticket eventually over time will have an identity. It will be your ticket. It won't be a barcode. And then from that phone and how we digitally deliver that ticket, you can decide how you want to send it to your sister, your brother, uh, bring two friends, or possibly resell it. Um, but the ticket will become digital. Fan Verified is the first step on that journey that says, if you want to go to a show, we want you to come early on. We want you to register. When you register between our algorithm and our database that can look and figure out our is Burkhoff actually a real individual or is he an IP um, scalper from another uh, country? Um, and then we can take that and really identify, are you a true fan or are you not? Are you a bot? Um, and we're having about a 90 plus percent um, success rate on being able to identify true fans. And then from there, we can put you in, in, in a pool and then we can have a conversation with you about you really now, we know who are trying to buy Springsteen tickets. We have a whole system on how we can start to rank those people and, and better yet, at least communicate with them. You know, the challenge is we don't have a mile wide front row. You know, the old problem in the businesses um, is supply demand, you know, and, and when you hear about other people trying to get into ticketing, it could be one of the worst things you can do for your brand is to be a ticketing company because 10 million people wanted to go to Adele and we had 400,000 tickets. Hmm. So there's no nice way to tell 9.6 million people you can't go, <laughs> right. no matter how good your, your, your offer may be. So we are in a business at the end of the day that you're going to always disappoint high demand performances. We don't have enough supply demand and demand. The challenge though is can we start being more transparent? Can we start having a better dialogue? So you... Mr. Burkhoff will feel better if you've registered and we tell you, thank you, thankfully you're in. You're one of 100,000 that have registered. We have 50,000 tickets. Here's maybe how you can you know, increase your spot in the line. But there is a better feeling that you feel like you had a shot, you registered, you knew where you stood in the line. And maybe we can't actually deliver this time for you. But if we can start to be more transparent that you didn't get beat by a bot... You got beat by maybe another human that got there in front of you. Uh, we can at least start to do two things. We can make sure Bruce goes on stage and has real fans that paid what he wanted to price the house at. And we can start to have a better dialogue with fans on a transparent ranking where they start to at least have some transparency around whether they got in or didn't get in um, versus right now at 10 o'clock, it's Wild West. There's eight pages of scalper tickets available, and the customer doesn't have trust anymore that he has any way to get a good ticket at the right price. Yeah, I would also think the data would allow you to alter the supply-demand equation, because if you could go back to Bruce Springsteen or Adele and say, guess what, we can do another few shows here, right? And we have enough demand for it, and here's your fan base. 100%. I mean, you know, the, the beautiful part about what we're, what we're doing when we start to identify the fan versus sell a barcode is right now when you buy four tickets for your family, I only know you. I don't know what you're doing with those other three. Um, so one, by having identity, we go from knowing one person in the house to those four. So that enriches our database. We start to really have a dialogue now with you. We have a, a system called TM Presence we've launched this year where we are selling directly to you on your phone. You're walking in the venue without a ticket, swiping your phone. That is your entry. 
you're sending those two tickets to your daughter and, and, and her friend. Um, we can have a dialogue with them if they've opted in. We can, t- we can upgrade you seats. We can offer you food and beverage. So really, they having an identity with the customer versus historically, we've just sold you a barcode and good luck. It starts to really change our business. You know, when you get into the reality of we're a huge advertising business with 900 sponsors, then it really gets frothy around the idea of now we know who the 80 million customers are. We have an ongoing dialogue. We know a lot more about them. We have a more enriched database. It starts to get really exciting about you know, what we can do with 80 million customers. How long before you can call yourself more of a technology platform or a data company versus a media company? You know, I think today everyone's a technology company, so I think those days are, are over on trying to say you're a technology. I would say where, where I think we've started to unlock value with investors and we're advertisers is I would say people start to think of us as a platform. When you have 30,000 concerts, um, which is 100 and something every day in 41 countries that 80 million customers are going to, that is a powerful platform for either the artist on the, on the B2B side if you're a, you know, Springsteen or whoever you may be, we provide a global platform that no one else has um, in terms of distribution. You, the concert and 100 dates, we can get that done better than anybody. So we have an incredible platform. But when you look at our 900 sponsors, you know, they're, whatever they're doing in their advertising decisions and how they're switching from digital to, you know, to Facebook to Google, whatever their decisions are, the one thing they are figuring out is they want to have a better direct relationship with the customer. And when we start talking to uh, those 900 brands about knowing 80 million customers, where they're going to be on a Thursday, how we can talk to them, uh, we provide, it provides us a real unique audience. So that kind of platform is something that we talk a lot about on no one has 80 million customers segmented in a database as rich as ours that we can talk to on a Tuesday. Um, and then we can amplify it in all the other ways we can make that even bigger for the, the sponsor. But that audience uh, and that platform is really the key, yeah. unique part of our business. The platform was scale. Yeah. So in the last quarterly call, you talking about Ticketmaster reported that you sold about 68 million tickets year to date this year, which is up nicely about 12 million higher than last year this time. And you said, quote, our Ticketmaster results are validating our dual strategy of delivering an effective marketplace for fans to buy tickets while providing a great software solution to venues, teams, and artists looking to mater- maximize the value of their events, end quote. So how good do you feel about the Ticketmaster side of the business versus you know, the concert side of the business? Now it's been the year six of Ticketmaster. So I'm very proud. This is a 40-year-old company. Um, and we can really say this has been an incredible turnaround strategy. Um, we took a company that, after you know, 35 years, had um, a green screen technology. The DNA of Ticketmaster, when we took over, was a very one-dimensional transactional site. Uh, it was it was really about servicing exclusively venues with a very poor customer experience. In the last six years, we have re- redone the entire business. We've broken the company up into a marketplace where you're just thinking about servicing the fan. And as kind of a Salesforce software SAP strategy, where we're a software business. We are in the business of creating great software for teams, artists, and venues to sell tickets. Um, whether that's primary, season tickets, NFL, however they may be, tons of clients. So the two businesses have really excelled in the last two years. So a couple facts. On the B2C side, the customer marketplace, we're going to sell over 500 million tickets this year. Uh, this year, we will have had some of the largest selling months in its 40-year history. 
Well, that's an incredible fact that 40 years later, you can be having some of your greatest growth sales, uh, monthly growth sales. So we've been growing the business dramatically. Um, and some of the strategies on Ticketmaster that we're proud about is we've made it a much more open strategy. You know, Ticketmaster today has a secondary offering, which it never would have had before. Or what I always talk about is putting more products on the shelf. So we've sold over a billion dollars in secondary tickets. We have an API that allows us to co-partner with Spotify and Bands in Town and YouTube and many other Groupons, destinations where we can get extended reach to sell more tickets. And as of this, this year, we now have non-Ticketmaster venues at our marketplace, which is going to add an incredible amount of more inventory. So we really become a great solution. If you need a ticket on a 10 o'clock, we can solve that problem. So all of the trends at Ticketmaster on the commerce side are excelling, and we're really, um, really confident that business will continue to, to grow and, and lead. The software side, um, again, there's nobody in the business that has the software that can service, whether it's FrontGate on festivals, TicketWeb on clubs, or the NFL stadiums. So that business has been regenerated from a green screen to a much more cloud-based, robust set of tools. And again, we would be well over 100% renewal on our client base the last three years and believe that that business, again, has an incredible global mm -hmm. scale. One thing that Ticketmaster, again, didn't do for 35 years was think globally. It was a very U.S.-centric strategy. So that's why when we talk about launching in Switzerland, you know, we're now in 20-plus countries. Ticketmaster globally has a very strong brand. When you walk into any market, it's usually a local, regional ticket company. Great opportunity because it's a fragmented strategy. Some countries are still selling tickets on the, on the retail chain, at the bank. Really old school. Um, nowhere near as advanced as the U.S. So when we walk in some of these European countries or Asian or, or Latin America, we have huge margin opportunity. They're fragmented. They're old school. Every time we can modernize them, put them online, sell them digital, you've got an incredible margin uptick. So we think Ticketmaster has a huge global runway ahead of it um, that'll give it growth for many years to come that no one is touching. But how about the integration between Ticketmaster and Core Live Nation? I mean, do you feel that these businesses belong together, or ultimately do you think they should separate? You know, we think it's the flywheel, right? We think if you look what's going on on MLB and in terms of you know, or the leagues, most leagues now want to have more control, or content wants to have more control of their ticketing. Let's start on that thesis. So the reason we ended up doing this deal was because. Live Nation is a league on itself. And Live Nation, just for itself, for its own 80 million customers and 30,000 shows, uh, approaching 30,000 shows, has to be the greatest ticketing engine um, in, in, the, in the land. I mean, we have to have all those skills. We have to know the customer. So we always believed that Live Nation needed to be a global ticketing company because it needed to service itself and, and wanted to have all of the advantages of its scale. We originally launched our own ticketing company called Live Nation Ticketing. That was our solution, which ended up maybe being a good chess move that got us to this relationship with Ticketmaster. But going forward, Live Nation on its own will always want to figure out how to monetize its 80 million customers through a ticketing platform. What better way than to have the largest global ticketing platform to service your own needs as well as the scale and efficiencies of everything else. So what it really lets us do, and we learned it quickly when we did Live Nation ticketing, servicing yourself has some advantages, but when you don't have scale, you're not able to do the R&D and innovation you need to do the verified fan and the TM presence. So 
the Ticketmaster's strength is 500 million customer tickets sold in a year and its scale and the amount of engineers and technology we have in-house daily developing new products, thinking about the future for its customer base. Oh, by the way, Live Nation happens to be one of its largest, but Live Nation gets the double benefit of owning its own ticketing platform, but having scale where it can wake up servicing the NFL and the MLBs and learn and get better and better at the product flow. So we think it's a, you know, a smart flywheel, as we call it. And then you also have the other benefit of if you're a Ticketmaster customer and you have Live Nation delivering you some content and your partnership already together, it probably makes sense to continue having a great relationship with this company that's delivering you content as well as a ticketing solution. You are as close to the artists as anybody in the business because you're working with them directly and connecting them to their fans. We also have the largest management company in the world. Correct, with Guy Osari, our friend, and others, well, we have, Maverick, right? I mean, he's one of, you know, we have 14 management companies, Maverick being one of them, um, under um, um, that we're in partnership with. Combined, over 300 artists are managed in our, uh, in our Artist Nation Management Division or, or through our partnership. So that's been an incredible, valuable business to understand truly the artist, understand how the, we can work with the artist, whether it's, driving our concert agenda, our festival agenda, or our ticketing agenda. So then, take us through how the artist is thinking about the music business today. Because a few years ago, obviously, Tidal was formed with, with Jay-Z, and it was really more of a, a kind of a call to action for the artists to have their own voice, their own platform directly reaching their consumers. Has that subsided somewhat? I mean, do you think that that business can be aggregated on behalf of the artist? Or what, what's the artist's outcry today? Do they feel like they've been treating fairly? I think it's, I mean, listen, it depends where you are in the, in the product life. If you're Springsteen, life is great. If you're a new artist, you know, trying to be heard, um, it's tougher. But that's always the case. I think, you know, I think in general, the artist is m- much more empowered today than they obviously ever were. You know, for many years, the artist was behind the platform, right? They had to be part of the gatekeepers, right? They had to get someone to play their record. They had to be signed by a label, and they hoped MTV would play their video. So they, they needed all those things to work to talk to the customer. If you're an artist today, uh, like Rihanna, with 100 million followers on Twitter or Facebook, a direct connection, um, it's powerful. They are media broadcast properties on themselves. So I think it's very liberating for artists to have this direct relationship. Um, now that kind of the advances against the record business have kind of gone away, that kind of call them, let's call that the ball and chain. Um, I think today you look at these young managers and these young artists, Chance the Rappers, um, they are businesses on themselves that are, being, are, are really in control. They can, you know, they can decide what partnerships what to work with, whether it's a record label, but doing it on their terms. It's not multi-year anymore. It may be a distribution deal only, may only be one year. They'll own the masters, working with concert promoters on their agenda, working with sponsors, clothing lines, advertisers, um, but they're in charge now. I mean, you know, they're really, the reason I liked being in the management business, um, if you kind of look at the totem pole, the labels were always on top. They were always the kings of the castle. Um, if you look at it now, management companies, Gaio Series and Rock Nations and Scooter Bronze and others, they, they really are running media companies with these powerful brands, touching TV, broadcast, merchandise, fashion lines, um, 360 with, model. 360 with huge audiences. Mm-hmm. So I think the you know the future and the artist of the future will continue to 
have that incredible, powerful, direct connection with the fan, they'll start selling their music more directly. We're talking to artists about how we help them sell tickets directly to their fans and power their ticketing solutions. So, you know, I think it's been an, it's an exciting time for artists. Um, if you've got hits and you can, you know, and you're talented and you can be heard, um, you have a, a, the ability now to really have your own relationships on a more multiple, uh, more, you know, kind of diverse manner than historically. There were a couple gatekeepers and that was it. So you mentioned Rihanna, you mentioned artists like uh, Chance the Rapper, Bruce Springsteen. Who are the artists that you feel like are leading the charge of being very commercial about their own brands? You know, in the U.S., it's, I mean, it's globally, you know, hip-hop, urban artists are, you know, on fire um, and, and, and doing a fabulous job, whether it's, you know, I've always said I think Jay-Z is one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest CEOs out there, um, the way he's managed that artist brand called Jay-Z, whether, you know, forget the pure talent he has, but just the ability to, to think bigger uh, really early in time uh, around that brand and what he could do with it. So, you know, you look at, obviously, what Puff's done, you look what Chance the Rapper's done. Um, so I think the urban hip-hop artists have always been very commercial-orientated, um, very in control of their agenda um, from early Dr. Dre days, and look what he's done now with, uh, with Jimmy. So I think the, you know, the hip-hop artists have always been entrepreneurs. If you look at the country artists today in, in America, you know, the, the Kenny Chesneys, the Luke Bryans, these are, you know, these are institutions on themselves. They got their own cruise lines or merchandise brands, Corona deals, very commercial and, and done a great job of, of doing it in, in an authentic way. And then you look at the EDM artists, although it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a space in, 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 in change. You look at Calvin Harris and some of these artists who didn't grow up with any of the traditional mediums. They don't have traditional agents or record labels or radio stations. Um, and became, you know, brands on themselves and little businesses. So I, I think today every manager's job is to walk in to talk to the artist about all of the new options available, whether it's how am I going to crack social media, how am I going to have a fashion line. You look at Beyonce and you know what she's been able to create above and beyond her brand. So you know today, if you're a, the, the manager's role and you have an artist that has pop culture relevance. You have them in some version of whether it's a, a clothing line or a, a soft drink or a vitamin water or technology play. The doors are so wide open across so many places that I think artists, because of their customer reach, you know, you think about it different than Hollywood. Movie stars don't have these kind of audiences. So as big as, you know, Brad Pitt is or some, some of these superstars that are making... Or even an NFL quarterback, right? Or an NFL quarterback. Nobody has 100 million plus followers that they can talk to every day. You know, I always always look back at the, the Rolling Stone days of, you know, the lips, the logo, that's the Nike swoosh logo, right? I mean, these, these are brilliant brands and institutions with huge audiences and merchandise lines. And we, do a, we have a huge merchandise company. And you look at the numbers that you're still selling on the ACDC, you know, business or Pink Floyd or the Rolling Stones lips, or, you know, these are institutional global brands um, write a passage. Everyone has to have an ACDC T-shirt at some point. Yeah. So these are you know, these are huge brands, and and I think the it's exciting times for them because now that the manager's job is to really unlock that brand on a global basis across multiple diverse um, platforms, um, the artist is really going to start taking advantage of the size of the audience that he's always had and start to bring it in house. So a couple more business questions, then mm -hmm. we'll get some fun facts to finish up. So virtual reality, 
you recently, I think, inked a partnership with Samsung to really promote VR at concerts, et cetera. Is that something that you feel really strongly about? How big is that opportunity for Live Nation? Reality. You know, again, it goes back to uh, to be consistent. It's a non-duplicatable business, and I truly believe that. We all know that. You 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 cannot the magic you feel when you're sitting at that U2 show in Joshua Tree, um, and that music resonates with you, and the goosebumps you feel, and that you know it's social validation. Concerts are something you want to share. Obviously, you want to bring your you know your wife, or you want to bring your son to that first uh, Jay Z show, or you want to. You know, reminisce with your buddies at ACDC. So these are these are moments of a very special Kodak moments in life. We all remember the concert we first took our wife to, or your date. You know, so these are magical moments that can't be duplicated. Um, um, for all the right, you know, the kind of the psychology reasons of social validation and et cetera. Now, however, I think in general the live concert, thanks to all of this great new media, still has a chance to be amplified. So I may not ever get the goosebumps. Uh, sitting at home watching the Joshua Tree, I think we can provide the fan at home better options, more robust ways to still be part of it. It's not going to be unlike sports where I can watch the Sunday football and rather be at home watching it than at the game. It's the opposite. You, you know, you want to always be at the U2 show or the Kendrick Lamar show, but for many reasons, if you can't, to date, there isn't not a lot of great options, right? It's YouTube and some, you know, some bad cell phone version. DVDs are gone. HBO specials are gone. Not a lot of broadcast opportunities to see Kendrick Lamar anymore or whoever is out there. We, we recently did some live stuff with Twitter on Zach Brown and had incredible viewership and that immediacy. We've done a lot with Snapchat and Facebook Live. We've been doing some of our festivals. So I think when you bring relevant media live and it feels kind of unique, that's been successful. Oh, Zach Brown's one of the best at these 360 models, right? One of the best. Really creative entrepreneurial guy. Really and, and a great artist. One of the great artists, great, great, great management team. So we think virtual reality, again, uh, you know, how many years it takes to get adoption and glasses and et cetera. We think it is a unique, one of the unique ways to bring that show to life. So we're, um, we're going to keep doing, you know, we're doing something big with Coldplay and Samsung. But again, I would say all of this, whether it's Twitter Live or, or virtual reality live, we're not modeling that as a large monetized idea today. But what we do believe is when you have 900 sponsors, remember our job is to, you know, whether it's online, as we always say, we can help you, the sponsor, talk about on stage to online. So a lot of what we do for those 900 sponsors is either on stage or on site activation or amplified. How can we talk to 500 million fans that are interested about uh, Electric Daisy on a global basis? So we want to keep being innovative on documentaries, on Twitter, on Live Live, on ways we can amplify the show on the new and latest medium and platforms to amplify those shows for two reasons. When you see Zach Brown live on Twitter and we have 60 more dates to sell, we know it's a great, we know visually is the best number one way to convince you to get off the couch and buy a ticket for Pittsburgh show. So we know any way we can get that video, that live virtual reality in your face, it's the best marketing tool we have. And then also it's great for sponsors who are continually saying, I want to be part of live. What are the new ways I can be part of it? And we think that provides us another media ad unit channel to, uh, to, to explore and discover with. Well, I want to piggyback on the sponsorship because you've 
tripled your sponsorship revenue over the last six years and really marrying corporate brands and sponsors to your events and your artists. What are the keys to that success? I mean, how do you draw that relationship? Promoters um, traditionally didn't believe they were in the sponsorship business, right? This was a, you know, the DNA of the concert business said we were, you know, we were promoters. We put the show on and, and, um, and sat backstage. But the DNA of Live Nation is we, we say when we kind of flipped the pyramid over 13 years ago, we were very clear that we are in the advertising business. It's not, a, it's not a afterthought. We're not trying to sell you something. We are in the scale reality of what we're building is that the 80 million fans is the business we're in. What do we do with those 80 million fans? We want to sell them more tickets. We want to sell them more on site. And we want to sell sponsors access and touch with them. That's the scale of our business. So, you know, we always used to get the question, you're really, really large. You spend $3 billion a year on talent. Now, when you meet the first analyst that you talk about your business, he says, great, if you can reduce costs by 10%, you could drop to your bottom line. And I always have to remind them that the cost of the business isn't the efficiency. It's the 80 million people that come to the shows is the scale. Yeah, the best businesses have the top line growth dropping to the bottom line with good management and then obviously compounding every year. Exactly. And it's the highest margin business, right? So although our business looks on, on surface low margin because we're counting the billions in ticket sales, the AOI, as you know, a big part of our AOI business of sponsorship, 25 plus percent margin business, uh, has been our largest growth business, which we think will continue to um, grow at double digits for years to come. We don't. We see just more and more brands waking up saying, on-site, activation, direct relationship is a place we want to spend more dollars on. So industry-wide, continual data that says dollars being shifted from traditional media to on-site will continue to help us. Okay, well, this is now our KinCast version of the Get to Know You for Michael Rapino. Okay. So tell me, if you can, one of your most memorable concert experiences. It's why I got into this business. I'm from a small town in Canada where we didn't have big shows. We were a 16-hour bus ride from Thunder Bay to Toronto. <laughs> and the first concert of substance that I went to at Toronto in Maple Leaf Gardens was Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. Me and my buddies bought a bus package and made our way to Toronto to see Robert Plant in the and, big city. Um, big, the big city move. I got lucky early because Michael Cole from Canada, who's really with Bill Graham, one of the pioneers of the live business, I would read about. Um, and I didn't know that he was unique. I thought there were lots of Michael Coles. But Michael Cole really invented, if you really want to look at the history of live, he was really the first one to invent kind of the consolidation of the tour deal. I happened to be a college rep in Thunder Bay for Labatt Breweries. And Labatt Breweries bought Michael Cole's company. And when I was in college, running around with beer cases and beer hats to market the beer, uh, I would read about Labatt Breweries and this Michael Cole buying the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels Tour for $90 million. It was the first time a band had sold someone an entire tour. Uh, since uh, this business started, it was a local business. And I just thought this man was the most interesting in the world, and I wanted to work with him, and I wanted to be in the live music business. Not the recorded, the live at 20 years old, I sat down in the, in the pub with um, a guy named Robert Peters from Labatt Breweries, and I looked at him and I said, by the time I'm 40 years old, I want to run the largest live entertainment company in the world. How do I get there? You said that when you were 20. Yeah, we wrote it down on a napkin. And it was all about, I got to get to Labatt, I got to get my brand stripes, got to be a brand, I got to get the right corporate 
had a background. I got to Labatt. I became brand manager, worked corporate business, worked mentoring myself and, uh, and going to school at Labatt's for 10 years and then started my own concert company. Left Labatt and started my own concert company and stayed on my journey. So I got lucky early in life. That there was one thing I wanted to do, and that was live music. And you got there by 40. I got there, and I'm still loving it. And I still have incredible passion and still think, you know, in a now it's just beautiful, right, because you get to see whether it's young employees or whether it's uh, an email a day I get from customers on what that two hours does for people, right? It's still one of the great, great escapes of life. Um, and I just think it's still a magical two hours of fun for people. Yeah, and starting with Michael Cole, but the question really is about who are the business leaders since then or even today that you really admire and respect that you get to work with or you've been interacting with, obviously, you, know, you and Irving have been friends for a long time. Who are the ones out there that you really feel like are your uh, compatriots, your mentors, executives, your fellow executives driving the media business forward? I'm a real student of the game, so I still read you know tons of books and autobiographies, and I've read them all. Um, you know, in, in the music business, there's always been the you know the David Geffen has always been I think everyone's mentor in this business. I think everyone wakes up wanting to somehow be David Geffen. I've had a great great relationship over the last uh, you know few years with Irving Azoff and. And, and Jimmy Iovine, who have been you know, really instrumental in helping and, uh, and, and guiding the ship. And you look in a macro perspective and you look what Bob Iger's done at Disney in terms of the way he's been able to handle himself with class and build an incredible organization. And then you have to look today at the tech business. I mean, you know, let's leave Jeff Bezos out of it. I mean, who doesn't, you know, who can't admire that? He's been incredible what he's been able to do. He kind of breaks logic down because he's, you know, they've been able to be good at so many things. It's, uh, it's hard to model. But when I look at the, you know, at the business today and, and, and you see what the, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs are doing or the Evans are doing at Snapchat, I think it's been really important that we've spent a lot of time. I've spent most of my time probably not dabbling in the music business history but making sure I'm spending time in the technology um, and Fortune 500s on other kind of CEOs that have built great businesses. And as I always remind my guys, we are in show business. And I think one of the challenges on the music business is too many people think they're just in the music part of the business. You know, as I always say, the artist is going to follow you when you can help build his business. And Donald Tarleton, Canadian, a real uh, kind of legend of the business, reminded me of that early that it's show business. So I think I've, I've been able to kind of stay focused on the business side, but look externally outside the music business, whether it's the case study or the mentors on how have they managed that business and how have they steered through that challenge, whatever that may be, whether it's global growth or whether it's um, advertising or, or um, investments. investments. Yeah. And then John Malone and Liberty and what they've been done. It's a great book called The Outsiders, John's fo focused in that I love. A lot of the principles. I love that A lot book. of principles of decentralization and resource allocation. Um, that, that's one of the books on my year-end letter reading list from last year. Yeah. What podcast you're listening to that is kind of informing uh, your summer? Podcasts, I you know, I got a ton. I love. I'm a, I'm a vegan, which some people don't know. So Rich Roll is always someone that inspires me. So you know, I try to find that balance between figuring out what's good for the mind and soul as well as what's good for the business. So I love Tim Ferriss and Rich Roll and. And some of those kind of Lewis, Lewis uh, Black and others that are uh, making sure that we're remembering the bigger mission as well as, as, the, as the music mission. It's important. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being with us. 
today on the Kindred Cast. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you this way and to learn about the business. And I'm assuming that the best is yet to come from here. I think we got a whole other chapter left of, uh, of how we're going to take this business to new places. And thank you. Congratulations on your success. You're just starting. Thank you very much. Well, hopefully we're tied together. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> take care. And we're back with Jeremy with the answer to the quiz question. In 2017, what is the projected growth rate for U.S. Facebook users ages 12 to 17? A, 8%, B, 3%, C, 0%, or D, negative 3%? And the answer is D, negative 3%, down to 14.5 million monthly users. According to eMarketer, Facebook will see an accelerated decline among U.S. teen users, from the 1.2% estimated drop in usage in 2016. Younger users continue to turn away from Facebook in favor of Instagram and Snapchat. Instagram's U.S. user base among the 12 to 17 cohort is expected to rise by 9% in 2017, and total monthly usage growth is projected to be 24%, rising to 85.5 million monthly users. I hope you enjoyed our show today. Thank you to Michael Rapino for taking us through a vivid history of the live music industry and for his thoughts on its future. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Thank you.